Hi, folks. Welcome back to LA Not So Confidential. This week is a very momentous occasion. This is our five-year podcast anniversary. We are at episode no 112. But Insane. Dr. Shiloh, this is all your fault. I still blame <laughs> this on you. You are responsible for my stressful summer and my constant exhaustion. Oh, lovely. You're welcome. And you're, you're also responsible for absolutely inspiring something that has turned into be something really great. This it's has insane. been a, an absolute thing that we had. I had no idea this was going to happen. Yeah. Five years is crazy. Like talking to the hostage negotiators, talking to FBI, everybody. Guy, we've been doing all sorts of presentations uh, on top of this, but it's all because of this podcast, which is pretty It cool. is. And I did get you a five-year anniversary gift, but it's not ready yet. So oh, since this is you. all my fault, it's like a I'm sorry slash podcast anniversary <laughs> gift. So just when you get it. it, you'll have to tell the listeners what it is. I just keep saying that it's your fault. So that if I, <laughs> would I, if I fuck up really badly, I go, but wait, I'm old. I don't know. It's like, I don't know what's happening. She I'm was taking advantage of me. Taking, that vixen was taking advantage of me. <laughs> Oh my gosh. No, this is five years is just like a whoa moment. I think about yeah. everything in our lives that has happened in the last five years. Huge shifts and some things that like for the listeners that kind of really get a beat on who we are personally. <laughs> oh my God. If there were the things that we could tell you right. personally that have gone on the huge transitions, it's been, we've been just, doing some major ups and downs. Yeah. And life is just for everyone is so different to, you know, just wholesome 20 2017 when we started yeah. this <laughs> <laughs> so innocent, uh, yeah. so naive naive 2017 yes yes but yeah it's it's huge we will see what the next five years brings maybe we kind of set that as our goal to keep doing this as long as it's fun as long as it's informative for you guys and when it isn't anymore trust me we have no problem pulling the plug and we'll just hand it over to two new fresh forensic psychologists that want to carry the torch absolutely how cool would that be <laughs> it'll be like the the pirate in the princess bride We'll just keep passing it down to someone else <laughs> and or they can pretend to be Dr. Shiloh and Dr. Scott. But let's hope it's not like Alana and Alana's involuntary <gasps> celibate project, Ooh, right? And she hands it over. over. To, uh, whoops. It just becomes a whole new phenomenon that psychologists are talking about in 10 years. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, our episode this week is a little different, but we'll get to that in a second. What do we got to do for housekeeping? We got to catch people up to speed. Yeah. I mean, we'll, we'll see you guys in Auburn, Washington this weekend. We, oh, right. speaking of incels, we're going to do our presentation there and looking forward to getting away for one last trip before the holidays at the Pacific Northwest True Crime Festival. So we will see you guys. I'm sure that you have your tickets already and it'll just be a few days. Also, we have picked a day and a time for our watch party of Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte. So <laughs> <laughs> we can pass this one up to have a watch party with everyone. This is not just Patreons this time around. So we are going to do this on Friday, October 21st at 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. The next couple of episodes, we're going to put this information out there at the top, but I want you to know that you can find the instructions on how to do this in the show notes of this episode, as well as on our webpage. If you go under live events, the watch party event is listed there under that tab and it has all of the instructions. So this is going to be through Amazon 
Prime Video, you need to have this on a desktop browser because it is not going to work on a tablet or a phone. You don't have to download anything. You just have to at least have Prime Video and we will all need to rent the film. So we're going to all rent it. Do that beforehand. Don't start the movie because what is going to happen is 15 minutes before our actual watch party, I'm going to put out a link that everyone is going to be able to access that will start the film for all of us together. So we're not at the different same time. Spots. Yeah. Right. All at the same time, there's a chat feature so we can write back and forth. Scott can put his little trivia information in there about the movie that we're going to watch. I'm sure he'll have some good ones for this movie. Tons of stuff, I'm sure. So that link will be up in a few different spots that night of the watch party. It's going to go up on the live events page on our website, but it will also go up on all of our social media outlets. So Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, there will be a post specifically for the watch party. Again, I know this is a lot to digest. Just look at the show notes and all of the instructions are there for you for your reference. I think that's it for housekeeping. So... Cool. So like we were saying, this week's episode takes a little bit of a turn. And while we're going to be talking about a disorder influence by the time of year and the crimes that occur during that time of year, we're actually hoping to provide some education to help our listeners get through what I really feel typically tends to be the most challenging time of the year for everyone. Yes, it is yep. only October or spooky season, as I call it, but it's also the beginning of the holiday run for at least the next three months or so. And that can mean a lot of things to people, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely address this in my regular job. You know, I know folks are struggling with this. And when I go to, to police officer briefings around the holidays, we talk about the things to expect, the things that are to come up and how to kind of keep your wits about you, <laughs> whether it's weather or whether it's family members or the stress and all of that. The holiday is always a mixed bag with lots of fun, but a lot of stress as well. And this year, the world's facing the holiday season that still has the shadow of COVID dangers. Right. So the messaging on safety protocols and infection rates are spotty and inconsistent. And that's on top of all these regular stressors of the holiday season. So I think a lot of people are thinking things like what's expected of me? Can we gather in groups? Lots of questions that so far we don't really know the exact answers to, but we can talk about what comes at you like a pumpkin spice scented freight train. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I hope this episode gives people just a little bit yeah. of pause to sort of think about this going into the season. We also thought that this is going to be a good topic for our upcoming trip to the Pacific Northwest, where they're known for their grace skies and their rainy weather in the darker months. Right. So for some, the changing of the weather is really challenging depending on their particular genetics or their neurochemical functioning, as well as possibly some old emotional family baggage about holidays that tends to set up unrealistic expectations each year. I mean, I know I can certainly relate to that. So while you can look forward to socially accepted carbohydrate consumption and a relief in temperature, hopefully, as well as scheduled holiday time, it's also the time of the year when cases of depression spike pretty significantly. Currently, two out of five people in the U.S. live with depression of some sort. And there are several forms of depression spanning from relatively mild and transient like adjustment disorder all the way over to major depressive disorder and the assorted debilitating features that can come along with major depressive disorder. Seasonal affective disorder, our topic today, affects one in 20 people in the U.S. and some people are affected very severely. Indeed. So what are we talking about when we talk about seasonal affective disorder or SAD 
because appropriately, the initials are SAD. So that means millions of people are impacted. Ironically, the things that we look forward to or think that we look forward to can contribute to SAD, such as cooler temperatures, shorter days, and the oncoming freight train of holidays again. But it isn't a coincidence that we experience the quote unquote winter blues, especially after daylight savings times ends. There's actually a reason for this. So SAD or seasonal affective disorder is a form of depression that's primarily characterized and is triggered in individuals by the change of the seasons. The majority of cases usually begin in the late fall or early winter and will continue through the winter months. While it can occur in the spring and summer, this isn't as common. And of course, given the area of the world you live in, the length and severity of seasons can vary. Observations that human beings are subject to seasonal changes in mood and behavior date as far back as 375 BCE, when Hippocrates, the father of medicine, noted variations in seasonal incidences of melancholy and mania in his patients. So historical background for this. Somebody's been noticing this has been happening a long time. The criteria for a diagnosis of SAD requires that you experience symptoms for at least two years and meet the full criteria for major depression occurring with specific seasons. So symptoms can include increased cravings for carbohydrates. Okay, you got me right there. Yeah, sign me up. Except that I I crave them all the time. So (laughs) I'm not sure if you'd be able to discern seasonally. Also fatigue, weight gain, and poor quality, but extended sleep periods. Mm. So sleeping longer and not waking up with the benefits of long sleep. So like you were saying, the end of daylight savings time, when the majority of states in the US moved their clocks back, that has been found to have an impact on moods and the prevalence of depression. Statistically, the U.S. population already experiences less daylight during the winter and moving the clocks makes the days even shorter due to the rigidity of work and travel schedules. Some states get less than five hours of sunlight on some days in the winter, but almost all have less than 10 hours. I never think about this stuff. Like, you know, we just like plug through the months and the seasons and do our thing. And I never stop to think about any of this. Well, I mean... You know, that's really interesting that you say that because, you know, you grew up here. You were born here. You're a Southern California native. I'm a transplant. Yeah. And I acclimated really quickly. But, you know, I come from an area of the country that had four distinct seasons and winter is never really bad, but it can be, you know, it can be 17 degrees in winter and then the next day it'll be 40. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's it's a wild change, but at least you have distinct seasons and changing of leaves. And out here, we just, we don't have any of that. We I just know. sort of like, oh, wait, it's not going to be as hot. Right. So I, I think it's, it's just interesting as big as the U.S. is. It's not like we, that like the Scandinavian countries that maybe to some extent have acclimated. Mm-hmm. To darker seasons? Mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah. Very interesting stuff. It's funny because we're getting ready to pack for the trip this weekend. And my daughter asked, well, what's the temperature going to be like? And it's going to be perfect, like 72 to 75, no rain. Dreaming. And she's like, I need 60s. She's just so ready for cool weather. I'm like, whose daughter are you? (laughs) I'm ready for it to, I would be happy if it rained the entire time. Oh my goodness. I really would, but that's me. Yeah. So let's look at how this actually impacts people. The impact of our reduced exposure to sunlight during the winter can actually cause a significant change in certain hormones and specifically serotonin, which is a neurotransmitter that affects our mood. And 
those sort of variations and levels can trigger depression. Also, reduced sunlight triggers an increased production of melatonin. So increased melatonin in the systems sends a message that it's time to sleep, which then throws off your body's circadian rhythms, also known as our biological or internal clock, and it still affects people for almost half of their year. So the condition lasts about 40% of the year, but the most difficult months for people in the U.S. are January and February. That reminds me of when I lived in Chicago, there would be depression alerts during January, February, and March because it would be cloudy for so long that on the you would wake up in the morning and on the news and on the radio, it would say, turn on all your lights and close the window so that you're not looking out. No way. Yeah. Depression alerts. I never heard of that. Yeah. Pretty interesting. People are more likely to experience sad if they live further from the equator in New Hampshire. It's almost 10%, but in Florida, the prevalence is only 1.5% of the population. Makes sense. I know it does make sense. Gender and age also play a role in sad with women being four times more likely to experience it than men. And the highest report of the condition is in young adults with the onset between the ages of 18 and 30. And studies are showing that the average age is 23 years old when the prominent symptoms really emerge. And while the older a person is, the less likely it is to occur. It's not clear in the research if the elder population have been studied to the same degree as the younger population. So Hmm. again, like we always like to talk about, we love stats, we love research, but you have to go all the way to the beginning of the study. What's the population that all of this research is being put on? Yeah, well, and we can hypothesize a little bit. You know, I go to the point of like, well, a younger person might have a more active social life. And if that is impacted by weather or, you know, temperature, coldness, and not going out and being with other people, maybe that that works. And maybe for someone who doesn't go out and isn't as social and is kind of in their routine or in their home because of any limitations, then because so we know just being with people that you enjoy being around helps mood so much. Hugely, it's a yes. social piece, which we'll talk about ways to kind of combat this and, and in a minute. So we also find that there's a genetic link as between 13 and 17% of people who develop SAD have an immediate family member with the disorder or a family history of psychiatric disorders. Totally makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. There's a direct link that shows that 55% have a family history of severe depression and 34% have a family history of substance abuse. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. I think we're going to get a little bit more into the substance abuse link to all of this later on. But overall, 5% of the population experiences it in any given year or around 10 million Americans. And although 5% doesn't seem like much, a larger section of the population still experiences less severe symptoms with an additional 10 to 20% having milder forms. But there are individuals who experience SAD so severely that it impacts their quality of life with up to 6% actually requiring hospitalization. Wow. So they're so depressed, specifically linked to SAD, that they end up getting hospitalized. And interestingly, when it comes to both male and female suicide rates, those tend to be higher during the spring and summer months, not winter, which is a big myth that people think about. When we started researching this episode, that was really confounding to me. Like I wasn't expecting that at all. But I do think that there is a a reason, like one of the hypotheses was that when someone is depressed and that the weather 
or a version of sad may be sapping their energy so much that they don't even have the energy to take action mm, in terms of self-harm. And then once spring sort of sort of wakes them up, then they can develop the strength. Ugh, I hate even to say this to strength. They can get the energy that will get them to yeah. the level to engage in that. So I have to put this out there. This is not me at all. By the end of August, I am worn out by summer. <laughs> I'm not a summer person. I'm so ready for it to end. I'm such a summer lover. <laughs> I'll take the heat over the cold anytime. <laughs> I, I even went through the academy during the summer and people were like, oh my God, this is awful when we're running. And I was like, the mornings where it's cold and my ears are frozen, that's awful. I want to die. <laughs> So give me summer and the heat. I love high temperature locations, but I have to say for ambiance, fall and winter is pretty good. Yeah, it is pretty great. Let's hope that we continue to have them with global warming. So oh God, <laughs> I'm the only one happy about global I know. warming. And we, and we just came out of like a heat wave. So you, yeah. even at the end of this heat wave, you were ready for a change too. I was, right? yeah. yeah, yeah. But yeah, as soon as the days get shorter, my energy and my mood really positively spike huh, okay. very significantly. My energy, my energy, I can actually have better workouts in fall, winter and spring. And the minute it starts warming up, I'm like, I don't have the energy to do that. So crazy. I don't know. And I've always wondered if like, like time of year of birth, so like the month of your birth mm -hmm. and what you're exposed to as a child has any kind of play into that. But I wasn't able to find if people if the research was going in that direction, like if you're an infant, what are the climate issues that you're being exposed to? And I'm of a generation that came before everybody had air conditioning. Like I grew right. up in a home in the South in summers that did not have air conditioning. We had box fans and that was it. So interesting. I mean, there's a lot of research out here that we'll touch yeah. on. Yeah. Well, when you said that, I thought of kind of a child like associating, let's say if their birthday is in the summer, they associate that with like fun and good times and party and it being about them. And does that give them a more positive view? I don't know. And opposite, like for winter, but. Well, I hated birthdays <laughs> when I was a kid. So I think I'm going to go into God, You're such an anomaly. We need to dissect I'm, you and study you. Uh, well, I never, you just put something together to me that I'm going to have to take into therapy next week. Oh, so shit. thank you, Dr. Shiloh. <laughs> Again. You're welcome. And I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's fine. It's fine. So let's talk about interventions for this. And for really, I mean, a lot of these are basics that you and yeah. I probably talk to folks who are suffering from depressive episodes all the time. And it's complicated. Of course, as mental health professionals, we want to acknowledge that while there's some commonality among the success of interventions, everyone has different factors that will impact the success of those interventions. And please don't take this episode and just think it's going to be a fix for you. Talk to your own mental health professional. We are podcasters, not your therapists. So right. Just a little caveat for you. But I mean, so, but thank you for kind of introducing that because the idea that I would want to pass on is that knowing about the potential for this condition can be the first step in developing an intervention strategy if you have it, or even if you're just having, even if you are just having the winter blues or the fall blues, sure. or you're susceptible for that. Maybe you don't meet the criteria for SAD. You definitely, if you notice that there's a pattern, you do have to go get evaluated. I highly, highly recommend that. But self-care is very important. I know that's an overused term, but it's very important. And it can include behavioral choices like choosing who you hang with, mm. you know, positive, generally upbeat people rather than those that bring you down. Do you have a lot of downers in your life? Well, if so, that probably requires 
a bit of insight and personal exploration on your part to deconstruct that. I can relate to that. There was a time where as a a helper and a fixer, I constantly chose broken birds in my life. Mm -hmm. And not to say that they're not wonderful people, each with their own wonderful potentials, but you know, it's not always the perfect fit at the right time to have a relationship. So if you are going through a tough time, be careful who you're hanging out with, because if you're with somebody else that's struggling, either you two can work towards or it can be more than two. You can work towards bringing yourself up or you can be kind of pulled down in the mud by somebody that just can't get out of their situation. So stick with people that reflect the best of you and can complement the way that you live your life. I don't mean give you compliments. I mean, act as an adjunctive, complementary energy source for your life. Well, and misery loves company. In a really dangerous way. It's true. People who sort of choose to to be miserable just because of their, their thought patterns or negative thought patterns can really suck the life out of you. And it, it can be, can be really easy to sort of just sort of move over to their end of that spectrum. But this totally makes sense what you're saying. I mean, we know when treating depression, again, spending time with others, not isolating can help boost positive mood symptoms. And it's just one of those lifestyle changes that can help. Aside from that, medical doctors also strongly suggest spending 30 to 60 minutes out in the sun in order to support the body's production of vitamin D. And if for any other health reasons like sun sensitivity, you might want to supplement the vitamin D in your diet. 60 to 80% of people with SAD benefit from sun exposure. You know, I feel like I need to go back for a second. Let's make sure that we we cover something for our listeners. For anybody out there that is struggling with depression, you know, we're not implying that you're a downer. I'm not oh, saying that yeah. at all. But for people with long-term chronic depression, believe me, as the clients that have come into my office, they are very much aware of what they're struggling with. And they are very much aware of the impact that it has on their environment. And then on top of it, they have guilt and shame. So we're not, we're not saying that from a judgmental place. We're just saying that we recognize that it's a complex constellation of factors that gets a person to a severe place in their life. And the one thing that I can say that unfortunately it's going to sound immutable, like I'm going to be really concrete about this is that you have to somehow find the one iota of energy to get help because it can't be done for you. And that is a a truth that sort of spans many paradigms within our life is that I get it. You can be almost catatonic from emotional challenges that, that people go through, but you have to have that one little molecule of energy that is going to at least point you towards recovery. And then the others will come along that can help you on that journey. So just wanted to clarify that before we get a lot of one-star reviews. (laughs) Oh gosh. (laughs) You know what I mean? Anyway, there's some research out there that shows that there are some adjunctive therapies like aromatherapy that can be helpful with the emphasis on those that have actually been studied, like sandalwood oil, tea tree oil, lavender oil, lemon oil. Those have actually been studied in double-blind studies and have shown positive results for alleviating symptoms of mild to moderate depression. Oh, are are you sure you're not trying to sell me some essential oils right now, Dr. Scott? Because I'm kind of getting sucked in. 
look, I'm from the South. My essential oil is bacon grease. That's it. So (laughs) Uh, (laughs) bacon will get me at it. Yeah. It's not going to be a surprise that working out regularly is going to be helpful. I mean, everybody knows. I mean, generally for many people, their go-to coping skill is exercise. And that's a good thing, but it can't be your only tool in the toolbox. You know, you have to have a certain amount that works. And for something like seasonal affective disorder, it's important to get at least the bare minimum. But the problem is the studies are all over the map on what the recommended amount is. There are some studies that show that as little as three minutes a day can make a significant positive impact on mood. But then there are other studies that say it is a bare minimum of 30 minutes that is the minimum amount for success. So once again, this is one of those times where we're looking at a lot of research and it's all going to be in our show notes if you want to read those papers. But I think that once again, I'm going to go back to pointing yourself in the direction of self-care, getting up and moving is going to be really, really helpful. So even if you're starting off from a place that you can only do one to three minutes a day, it's mm-hmm. something. Yeah. It certainly is something. The majority of the studies on major depressive disorder exclusively, though, shows that even 15 minutes of running or one hour of walking reduces the risk of episodes by 26%. In reality, though, less than 5% of adults do at least 30 minutes of exercise, other types of physical activity each day. That's really frightening. And it's one of the reasons yeah. that we have all these other health issues that are coming from like sitting at a desk and getting tech neck because you're hunched over your computer all day. And then you don't understand why your shoulders and your traps and your neck hurt. As you Um, and I both simultaneously put our shoulders back right now. We're like pulling back (laughs) right now. So there's also the challenge that people tend to exercise less in winter because there's less daylight and it's colder. And a self-report study showed that 43.9% of participants reported not being consistent with exercise routines in the winter. That's me. I even literally our gym is just a walk out one door and into another. And I'm like, it's so cold in there. <laughs> so my That's husband- That's so crazy. I'm just the opposite. A, he bought a heater though. And so it's actually on a timer. So it heats up before we wake up to go out there into the gym. Your husband is a gym. I know, I He's know. a scary scowling gym. <laughs> <laughs> but this, you're talking about another lifestyle change that does wonders. Yeah. It's- hard to implement when you're depressed. You're talking about, you know, that motivation that you're trying to find to make some of these changes, but super, super important because I think if if we look at the research overall, there has been some good robust studies that show that exercising regularly. Now I know there's some discrepancy of what that means regularly, but does have the same effectiveness as antidepressant medication. And that's, yes. that's pretty huge. So yes, it just doesn't stay in the system as long. I mean, the whole goal right. of, of SSRIs is to change the chemistry so that those neurotransmitters stay active in the synapses longer. But yeah, I mean, most people that enjoy exercise and, you know, I get it. Some people just don't enjoy exercise. Mm-hmm. I get that. Mm-hmm. I do. I love kind of walking out of the gym at 6am, you know, feeling completely angry after, you know, going hardcore for an hour, but that's, you know, not everybody's wired that way. I get it. And eating well is going to support your mood and while diets vary, the consumption of highly processed foods is going to contribute to blood sugar spikes. Wildly varying blood sugar definitely can steer people towards fatigue and depression. So again, we're just talking about some basic foundational wellness skills here, but there is also light therapy that is talked about when we talk about seasonal affective disorder. The science is not consistent. So light therapy 
therapy or phototherapy is prescribed for several mood disorders. Many people report success with either self-prescribed or doctor-prescribed phototherapy. The majority of the research has focused on light therapy for treating major depressive disorder with seasonal patterns. Academic research has expanded to look into using light therapy for other conditions, including other mood disorders and sleep disorders. Very interesting stuff. Some of the research I remember reading several years ago was indicating that many mammals actually have some rudimentary, very primitive, light-sensitive cells on the backs of their legs. What? From when we were on all fours. I'm sorry, what? Yeah, like not eyes, but just like your skin is actually recognizing that it's getting sunlight. Like solar panels on the backs of our legs? Yeah, like solar panels, yeah. (laughs) So, and of course, like we, I, you know, of course, I'm not going to let a chance to get away to talk about weird shit, but you know... Like they're telling people now, please do not sun your taint because like that whole trend came out of like, yeah, it's really important. So lay on your back and show your brown round to the sun and let it soak up. And everybody was getting sunburn on their rectum. Oh my goodness. I know. See, I was just going to go on a skincare tangent for a moment and you went there. (laughs) I just think it's a perfect example of like people take an interesting idea and completely screw it up. And Uh, that's. Uh, yeah. Example. No, I was going to say as far I I do my own light therapy every night because I have that stem light that I use for my skin that oh, okay. I do in different regions of my face. <laughs> yeah. Remember we saw the one you and me and Rebecca, our lovely a colleague, Rebecca's fashion. I found that wand that had like electrostim as oh, well yeah. as blue and red light for all these different treatments. I was like, I don't know. It looks like a really advanced sex toy and I'm not going to pay 350 <laughs> for that. Just keep it Three- away from your taint. <laughs> That should be on the warning label, not for use on the taint. Holy shit. We've gone off the rails. Bring it back. Bring it back. Okay. So like we were saying earlier, SAD was coined as a term and then a diagnosis. And this was back in the 1980s. And at that time, it was categorized under major depression to signify depression with a yearly recurrence. And the goal at the time was to describe a condition that's far more debilitating than what they would call like the average sort of run of the mill winter blues that would come from weather and time changes. So that may made a lot of referrals to SAD start to appear in research and pretty much peaked in the 1990s, but it continues to be viewed as a diagnosable condition. But despite this, a study from 2016 strongly questions the existence of seasonal depression. And that study focused on the 2006 version of a CDC study that included a set of questions typically used to screen for depression. So this is really interesting to me because in grad school, when we were prepping to conceptualize and start developing our dissertations, Mm -hmm. the program head introduced us to a data set. So it was like this massive government data set of all sorts of stuff. There was like all sorts of demographic information from census or something like that. And you could go in and just like look at sort of correlations between all sorts of factors. mine it for publication. Exactly. So that's what's happening here is that this may have been a study from 2016, but they were using an enormous data set from 10 years prior in order to mine that data. I just 
find that fascinating. So that analysis came from responses of over 34,000 adults in a self-report study. And that's really important to know that this was a self-report study. It wasn't a person one-to-one asking them questions. It was over the course of a year, they would get an email or something in the mail asking them to fill it out and send it back in. And the goal at that time was not to question seasonal affective disorder, but to look at wintertime surges in depression. And the author of the study, Dr. Stephen Lobello, stated, to be honest, we initially did not question the SAD diagnosis. The goal was to determine the actual extent to which depression changes with the seasons. Okay. Yeah. So the researchers were expecting an overall increase in reported depressive symptoms in Northern communities because of low light exposure and shortened days, initiating essentially a cycle of depression. And the study was also looking at the development of artificial light therapies for clients with a diagnosis of SAD as reports linked increased light with increased mood. So the study asserts that they found that there was no true evidence for seasonal affective disorder, but Mm. it's important to note that the research opined that there may have been major problems with the original data collection that indicates a possible existence of seasonal affective disorder. They found two possible problems. One, the questions typically used to screen for SAD while very specific, were incredibly leading. So I think that's- That's a problem. It's a problem and it's great that they said this. And then second, sort of the expectations. Essentially, the researchers asserted that even hearing about the winter blues in popular culture could stimulate confirmation biases that would then lead or encourage potential patients and researchers to find evidence of seasonal affective disorder in their life, whether it was really present or not. So good on them for pointing out these limitations. Yeah, that's- that's good. That's good reporting. That's good research. And that's good questioning the veracity of the information. They also went on to explore the possibility of additional confounding factors, like the individual might be experiencing a major depressive episode in the winter and need therapy for SAD, or they might need therapy to cope with just holiday time stresses, or they might have other pre-existing mental health issues. So other studies, particularly in Norway and other Northern countries are calling into question what actually actual measures are being used to visualize seasonal depression. A quote from the article states, if changes in sunlight or other qualities of winter can provoke seasonal depression, then why doesn't the Norwegian winter with severely shortened daylight report higher rates? So maybe Norwegian culture helps ward off any negative effects of winter. Maybe sad is not what we think it is. They do show that Scandinavian substance use rates are higher, but overall depression rates are not as high as the Ukraine at 6.3%, which we can completely understand, especially today. Yeah. But then there's a tie of three countries at 5.9% being Australia, Estonia, and the United States. And then after that is Brazil at 5.8%. That's kind of stunning that they have that close of the stats of this and all completely different weather patterns. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Well, I wanted to dive into the Scandinavian countries a little bit more and see what's going on there. So what they have found with some studies done there is that mindset is huge. And I think we can all take this away of, you know, mindset where no matter where you are or, you know, what the weather's like or what sort of obstacles or stressors you see coming your way. It's just, it's a big deal. And this has been studied extensively in Nordic countries because although they have long winter months, they also rank among the happiest countries in the world, right? That they're always at the top of the list. Research conducted by Carrie Leibowitz, a PhD candidate in psychology at Stanford University, 
found that the overwhelming attitude towards winter was one of celebration, something to be enjoyed rather than something to be endured. Interesting. So Norwegian's coping skills include the concept of kushli, whose regional equivalents include the Danish Huga. Woohoo! We did it right this time. Remember well, all the emails didn't. we got? <laughs> I know. I, I, what did I say? I said Higgy. Did I say Higgy? I used to say Hige, and then you said Higgy. Oh, so wow. I just want to, we got and it. And we love our listeners. So yes. thank you for, they're always so kind in how they correct us. They I really know. are. And then the, nice. the Swedes have, their version is called Mize. So okay. this is all an all-encompassing philosophy that combines coziness, companionship, and nature, and taking pleasure in the simple things in life to promote well-being, particularly in the winter months. I love that. I love that too. So going back to the previous study, which, you know, they kind of told on themselves with the problem of how the research was gathered and what it might indicate or what it might not indicate. I just want to emphasize that more study needs to happen. And just because we're not seeing sad in certain populations in certain areas at certain times doesn't mean that it's not real. It doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. There is enough robust information there that's indicating something is going on. Maybe it's the le- the way these things are communicated, it's classified, or maybe the nomenclature issue in regards to this condition, but clearly something's going on that is confounding definition. And of course, there's even more research, right? Yes, a confounding study to the challenge study. So (laughs) I know we're throwing a lot of studies at you today, but this study says, quote, our findings indicate that internet searches for depression from people in higher latitudes are more vulnerable to season change, whereas the phenomenon is obscured in tropical areas. This phenomenon exists universally across countries, regardless of language. And the study provides novel internet-based evidence for the epidemiology of seasonal depression. So So just going and looking at Google searches, basically, they're comparing different parts of the world and who's looking at why or how they can intervene with seasonal depression. Interesting stuff. So why don't we turn to how seasons can impact crime rates? Yes, because there is an indicator there. So I know we took a long way to get into this and we're not going to go into specific crimes, but there is a link there and some of it is pretty surprising. It certainly was surprising to us. Jennifer Marie Reed and her research paper, Alaska's Winter Relationship to Domestic Violence and Alcohol Abuse, found the following conclusion. So I'm reading a quote. With the long, dark, cold winters in Alaska, feelings of depression can cause one to act out violently toward their loved ones or others they come in contact with. The long winters are also a perfect environment for binge drinking and alcoholism. Many people fall prey to seasonal affective disorder and have been known to act out violently. With the research provided and explained, there is a distinct relationship between Alaska's winters, domestic violence, and higher alcohol-related crimes. Low sunlight causes negative effects on a human being's life and the lives of others. Different ways to cope with Alaska's winters are buying seasonal affective disorder lights that give off light comparable to direct sunlight, finding ways to keep yourself busy and reaching out for help if you're feeling depressed. I like that. That's mm-hmm. very, that's sort of like the the quick review of the entire study. Miss Reed's research is really solid. She goes on a state by state comparison with others that have similar temperature fluctuations. And then she goes on to say, as you can see, there is a huge difference between the two states crime rates, even though the population weather is similar crime is horrible in Alaska. And I think she was comparing it to New Hampshire. Oh, got it. Yeah. Okay. So there really is actually a season of crime. And 
it's well, not fall. What right? we've talked about, people <laughs> might think, okay, is it fall or winter? But it's not, it's summer. So yeah, now that summer's over, we can tell you all about this. <laughs> Analysis of seasonal relation to crime rates and the factors that can aggravate, increase, or mediate criminal activity has actually been studied since the 1800s. In 1831, a Belgian statistician, Adolf Quetelet, began observing and researching seasonal patterns in crime. And he later asserted that the quote, thermic law of delinquency is a thing. So okay. <laughs> start using that, folks. It's a thing. This law stated that, or rather proposed, that hotter climates, environments, and seasons leads to more violent crimes. He went on to posit that colder climates were more likely to produce property crimes. Interesting. Quetelet is a name that we really haven't spent a good amount of time talking about on our podcast yet, but historically he plays an enormous role in the development of criminology as a field of study. He and other select 19th century statisticians and social scientists followed the geography of offenses and crimes across the US and Western Europe, basically mapping incidents, which led to the focus on human behavior and human behavior that results in crime. And his research was developed into what was called moral science that later became vital in the establishment of the infrastructure of modern criminology. That's fascinating because I had never heard his name before. And there's a whole wonderful Wikipedia page and some other pages devoted to him that shows he really laid the foundation for a lot of this. So during the late 19th and early 20th century, the general argument made by these academics, including Quetelet, asserted that warmer temperatures and more social and community interactions and activities would increase the incidence of crimes against other persons. And then in contrast, they also asserted that the challenges of the cold months of winter drove more property crimes, as you said earlier. The assumption was that less sunlight and longer periods of nighttime would provide more opportunity for property crimes such as burglary. And our current data shows that property crime also increases in the summer months, actually even higher than in the winter. And it huh. varies from location to location. Urban areas that display a larger temperature fluctuation or change over the course of the year shows a strong seasonal affect. Examples like Chicago and Boston are provided and they have widely varied incidences of temperature throughout the year. And in places like LA, which is a consistently warmer city, we show less seasonal effects on crime. LA factors such as no school during the summer and substantial tourism during the summer provides an increased population of potential offenders and victims. And also, while it sounds like temperature would hold a strong effect, the concept of routine activities is actually much stronger when you look at the research. So this is the opportunity-based theory of crime, meaning that when a motivated offender finds a suitable target in the absence of capable guardianship, a crime is likely to occur. U.S. government studies from 2014 were able to show that these patterns exist, but were not able to break down all of the contributing factors. And because that study didn't include regional breakdowns, we're unable to tell whether it's warm weather that leads to more crime or whether it's something else going on. Again, it's likely a combination of other factors that include victim availability and proximity. And the research didn't provide explanations for why these seasonal patterns existed. They just identified that the patterns exist. That's fascinating because it's all about, I mean, you talk about with your ongoing experience in working with SVPs and offenders in the community that that there's there's definitely a classification of opportunists, right? That if the opportunity presents itself, then they're going to take advantage right. of it. That seems to be a big driving factor here. Yeah. It's very interesting. Now, in more direct examinations of victim trends, seasonal patterns 
do hold a focus in violent victimizations. Rape and sexual assault rates and aggravated assault rates are higher in the summer than in most other seasons, but less violent assault rates are higher in the fall than compared to other seasons. So it's interesting that robbery victimization rates don't have a seasonal pattern at all, even when controlling in various geographic locations throughout the U.S. That is interesting. So when we look at domestic violence and or intimate partner violence, they those crimes show regular seasonal fluctuations. Rates yeah. of IPV are highest during the summer and lowest during the winter. And this is a little surprising, right? Because we might assume that colder weather means more time spent indoors together. And I know this is something I think about when I'm on call and I go, okay, okay, what's the weather like and how are people going to be misbehaving? (laughs) Because I was on call during one of the heat waves and I thought either this is going to be the wildest week because people are hot and pissed and drinking alcohol and maybe it's going to be crazy. It was quiet. Nobody was out committing crime because it was so hot. I mean, like 105, 110 degrees throughout Los Angeles. But weapon-oriented violence that results in serious injury is higher in the summer. Rates of aggravated assault were higher during the summer months than any other season, but in comparison, simple assault rates were higher during the fall than during other seasons of the year. So what is it that's special about fall and simple assaults? What do you think, Scott? I have a little maybe hypothesis, but I don't know. I mean, I wonder if it's just about sort of fall fever, a version of spring fever is like, you've been exhausted by the heat and now it's cooling off and you, I don't know, like I'm sort of thinking of like a thermic model of my own Yeah, that the brain is now able to function better. Like you, like you were talking about the alcohol issue is even for people with drinking problems, there's a point with temperature, if you don't have air conditioning and you're drinking Mm -hmm. in the heat, you will pass out very quickly. It's not like you can sustain it with a, like you, like people do with the moderate temperature and they just keep tossing them back. So they're having a little bit of a cooling effect. Uh Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. There's, I'd like to see more research on this. So the one thing that comes to me for fall is school is back in session. Okay. So I think, okay, are these, you know, it's just, it's when we're, cause this is very specific, simple assaults, right? So are kids fighting? Are there, you know, higher numbers of kids gathering in places where, you know, they're getting rowdy with each other or are they victims of older people now that they're out and about and we can sort of know their patterns and things like that? I don't know. Just total off the top of my head. The other one, which I texted you about, it's football season. Right. So anecdotally, any cop listening to this knows that if you get stuck working Super Bowl Sunday, you're probably going to respond to some domestic violence or some simple assault calls for service that are happening because people are wasted. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm I'm wondering if that's also, and, and you know what? I don't even know if that's true. Like that, that could totally just be like a police officer myth. I've never looked up that study that if they, if truly like maybe in the, the uniform crime report shows that Super Bowl Sunday has higher assault rates or DV incidents. I don't know, but I know anecdotally, we always kind of felt that that was happening. So well, we'll we see. feel that way about the, the full moon too. It's like right. anecdotal, they keep there, all these studies come out and say, there's no correlation, but talk to any intake psych nurse at a hospital. Uh-huh. 100%. Any yeah. of the referrals I get, I'm like, oh boy, people are ramping up for the full moon. Feels like it at least. Yeah. So there's a season of crime. Is there a diagnosis related 
to crime. As we have said many times, the severely mentally ill are statistically less likely to commit crime. And unfortunately, they are statistically more likely to become victims because of their, many of them being unhoused, less ability to sort of navigate through the community. Being and they seen can, as vulnerable by yeah, being offenders. Seen, exactly, being targeted. But is there a nexus to emotional state and crime? Well, it turns out there is. Surprisingly, this really took me by surprise. When we tend to think of individuals with depression, we tend to look at it as they're going to have less motivation to commit crime, right? It can definitely be an underlying factor that drives disinhibition. Depression can definitely be an underlying factor that drives disinhibition. If we go back to our psychological great-granddad, Sigmund Freud, he asserted in his writings that depression results from anger being repressed and then directed towards oneself rather than being expressed externally. And while anger turned inward or focused on one's perceived shortcomings, is common with people depression, it doesn't guarantee that there can't be a reversal of that flow. And of course, this can be aggravated by a number of the factors that we've discussed, substance use, isolation, and as we have discussed in previous episodes, extreme overvalued beliefs. Take someone who is depressed, Mm -hmm. lonely, isolated, living in an internet bubble and developing extreme overvalued beliefs. That is a very bad combination. Yes, And something we've talked about before, where now that we know when men suffer from depression, their symptoms are different, right? Yes. Can be different. Of course, this is, everyone's unique and this is not a blanket statement, but we find that men tend to act out and anger is that acceptable emotion that they can display when they're depressed. And some of that acting out can be substance use, sexual activity, dangerous sort of risk-taking behavior and fighting. So well, right it's because it's a it's a, a heteronormative norm for males. Yeah. It's a it's a masculine role norm. It's a male role norm of masculine ideology that of course an alpha male is going to get angry. Yeah. So you just yeah. sort of accept it whereas a woman starts to show anger and you're like god she's a shrill bitch you know come on. Right. Or like oh depressed people are supposed to lay in their bed and cry and that's right. okay for women but not for men. Right. And 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 I think there's also a piece of it that's like I just need to feel something again because I'm depressed I might be numb and the way I can do that is drive my motorcycle super fast up this windy mountain road or yeah. go punch this asshole in the face and yeah. feel something again. But scientists at Oxford University, they have some research that shows that people diagnosed with depression are roughly three times more likely than the general population to commit violent crimes. And those crimes include things like robbery, assault, and sexual offenses. Again, this doesn't happen in a vacuum just with depression. There are also other factors that can aggravate this. And then there was one study in Sweden that looked at more than 47,000 people in their country, confirming that the vast majority of depressed people are neither violent nor criminal. So just, I hope people are understanding what we're saying, that when the people are committing these crimes, there are other factors going on, but it does not mean that just because someone has a diagnosis of depression that that automatically makes them violent. So the researchers in the Swedish experiment found that 3.7% of men and 0.5% of women 
committed a violent crime after being identified as clinically depressed. And this compared with 1.2% of men and 0.2% of women in the general population. And when compared to the population numbers that included those with more profound diagnoses, such as schizophrenia, it showed that they are lower than the population with depression and comorbid diagnoses of substance abuse. Then more research showed that diagnoses of dementia with depression are linked to more incidents of physical aggression, which harkens back a little bit to our elder abuse episode. And we're talking about things that people are struggling with. I'm that really, I was not expecting Me that either. when we started putting this together. I, again, I know everybody that's listening and you're having a reaction. We want to make sure that we're not, we're, that you understand what we're saying. We're not saying that depressed people are more likely to commit crimes, but we're saying that it certainly can play as a factor if it's part of something else, if it's part of something that, you know, a, a person who has a lot of criminal factors in their lifestyle or criminogenic right. thinking, if they might have other comorbid diagnoses or if they have personality disorders, personality disorder and depression is never a really a good combination at all. So just a, a hard turn here, just want to throw some things in important takeaways regarding being a victim of a crime. You are more likely to be a victim of violent crime in the summer. Your house is much more likely to be broken into during the summer. And the beginning of the school year is the most dangerous time for teens. So that, that corresponds with fall, what I was saying before, but actually teens are safest in summer when they're out of school. It's when they get back to the classroom in the fall that they're more at risk for those simple assaults. That's terrifying. And I'm not even a parent. Another one, spring is relatively a safe time of year for everyone, but you can be mugged in any season. Oh, it's so non-discriminatory. Huh? Mugging is non-discriminatory. But statistically speaking, there's no single peak season for rape, although rape and sexual assault do follow a seasonal pattern. Hmm. But let's discuss spell a terrible and ongoing assumption about rape and clothing. There's evidence that the clothing women wear in warm weather does not encourage rape. Women have been dealing with that for generations. Too long. You know? Yeah, exactly. Way too long. Yeah. So normally this is where you and I would talk about a criminal case where seasonal affective disorder had some sort of nexus. And you and I thought okay, well, maybe it's been used as a defense in court. But when I searched for criminal cases that use SAD as a defense, all I found was a smattering of like lawyers' websites that listed it under mental defects that could be used for an insanity defense. So this means that it has to have been used in some case somewhere, right? If, if attorneys are listing it, basically they're talking, okay, here's the insanity defense. You have to have a mental defect. And here's some of those mental defects that are recognized. I don't have the legal research background anymore to go find court cases that weren't easily accessible on the internet to find those. I was going to say the one that I found that I didn't want to expand on was from a defense attorney's website. And it was, he used the example of SAD being used in custody cases. When uh. the dad and he gave three specific cases of a father trying to get full custody of his kids because his ex-wife was diagnosed with SAD and therefore sure. she was an incapable parent during that time, which is not true. Got it. You know, you may be struggling with things, but many parents struggle with being a parent. I mean, it's it's yeah. our job. So but yeah, basically I'm saying like, I couldn't find anything, but I think it's really interesting to think about, you know, you could essentially, if this happened and maybe even in like this custody case, have a battle of the experts testifying in court, whether it's a legit diagnosis or not, yeah. because of the research that we've covered here today. And we've covered so many 
so-called diagnoses that aren't really a thing, I bet that could get really messy. So I wish I was able to find some, but just couldn't find anything. But that means, yes, we have no case studies for you today, but turning to entertainment depictions, there is a short film that exists called Seasons Greetings, and it's an Indian film by Pocket Films, and I'll post the YouTube link in the show notes. But essentially, it is a story that revolves around a man in Mumbai suffering with seasonal affective disorder and kind of shows him at the beginning. He's so tired with summer and is impatiently waiting for essentially monsoon season to hit the city. And once monsoon season arrives, he's really depressed and frustrated due to the continuous rain. And it's it's fictionalized, but it's it's a good representation, I think, of what it could be like. It's clearly someone stole the story of my life and just changed the oh, ending because it. I love it when it rains. I'm like running out, sitting in the rain. Like, <laughs> You're I doing the Drew Barrymore it. challenge. I, yes, TikTok yes. challenge. <laughs> God love her. I know, I know. But this was a very psych research heavy episode for you guys, you know, after our departure, the last one on Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. So I hope our psych nerds enjoyed this one. And then we've got one coming up for our next episode that'll be a real departure from this. So (laughs) literally a departure. That's your clue. (laughs) Literally. And we're so we're just all over the place during this fall season. Can't wait to see all of you that can join us for the watch party. It's going to be a blast. We always have fun. This is going to be really cool opening it up to a bigger audience beyond just our Patreon members. So yeah. Yeah. And we'll see some of you in Washington this weekend. Don't forget to check the show notes for the watch party instructions, by the way. So all right, everyone, we will see you next time on L.A., Not so. Confidential. Bye-bye. Bye. We sincerely thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network in partnership with Glassbox Media. Each episode is hosted, produced, and written by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our post-production editing and sweetening magic is handled by the multi-talented Jason Usry of Earcult Productions. The LA Not So Confidential theme entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir is composed and performed by the talented Kevin McLeod. He graciously allows us to use his music via a Creative Commons attribution license. Please check out all of Kevin's amazing work on YouTube. All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at www.la-not-so confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Media inquiries and bookings are scheduled at alienistentertainment at gmail.com. Please join us each month on Saturdays at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for a live streaming and very interactive broadcast on YouTube entitled Behind the Couch. Stay tuned to all of our social media for our live stream scheduling announcements. Subscribe to LA Not So Confidential so you never miss a new episode. Lastly, we would be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash LA Not So Podcast so you can be the first notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way. Thanks for listening and join us next time on LA Not So Confidential. <laughs>